and welcome to this podcast from the Training and Members Committee of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. My name is Ailish Namu and I'm a renal ST5 and I'm here today with Dr Pippa Bailey who's a consultant and senior lecturer in nephrology at Southmead Hospital in Bristol. And today we're going to discuss a little bit about what we've learned about acute kidney injury and chronic kidney disease during the COVID pandemic and consider how we're managing these patients and how our practice has changed over the last couple of months. Thank you for talking today. My pleasure. Um, I think it's uh, really helpful to just make a couple of points really early on. So the first is a really obvious one, but it's that this situation is rapidly changing and our understanding of COVID-19 is still... Uh, very much in its infancy. So what I say today may well be out of date by um, tomorrow. Um, So just in terms of some recommendations for up-to-date information on kidney disease and COVID-19, I'd really strongly recommend the NEFJC webpages, which are an excellent resource at um, at any time, but particularly at this time regarding COVID-19 and um, AKI and chronic kidney disease. Uh, the second thing I think is worth saying is um, it's worth being really explicit early on about the quality of the evidence available um, and our discussion today is obviously going to be informed by our experience of caring for people on the wards together um, uh, and as far as is possible by the data that's available but we need to be clear about what that data looks like and really our evidence is limited at the moment to emerging audit findings Um, Research is limited to case series, single centre retrospective analyses that have often been published without prior peer review Um, and so uh, we need to be a bit careful about using that evidence to make very kind of firm claims Uh, and we also need to be careful because the data has come from countries that are quite different to the UK, Mm -hmm. different populations, different healthcare systems so again we just need to be careful when we're kind of generalising findings to the UK. Yeah, I think that's both really important points. If we think first of all about acute kidney injury, this is something that a lot of people working in general medical wards will be seeing in the patients that are coming into hospital with COVID. What do we know at the moment about the risk of developing acute kidney injury in these patients? So having got in my disclaimers early, I, the answer is really that we don't know what the risk of AKI is in people with COVID-19. So we lack UK-specific data on the incidence of AKI um, in COVID-19, and maybe more importantly on the outcomes for people who do get AKI. The UK data that we do have is largely limited to people who are sick enough to be admitted to the intensive care unit, and therefore the most unwell and those with the most severe AKIs. So according to the latest ICNARC data, which is the UK's Intensive Care National Audit and Research Centre data, which was last released on the 17th of April, of those people admitted to intensive care, about 20% required renal support and almost all of those people required it as a new requirement, so an acute picture rather than a kind of chronic picture. So that's the information we have from the UK. I guess looking globally, there's been a huge range in the reported incidence of AKI in COVID-19 patients um, with uh, ranges, figures ranging from 0.5 to you know, up to 29%. Um, but actually, if we look kind of pre-COVID uh, and look at um, the incidence of AKI in patients admitted to hospital uh, in general, about 8 to 20% of hospital admissions are associated with AKI. And so maybe what we're seeing in COVID-19 is really just similar to what we see in hospitalised patients in in general. Mm. And I suppose a lot of that probably reflects that if you're sick enough to be in critical care, sick kidneys are a reflection of a sick patient and should be a marker for us 
to use that as an early warning that somebody is getting worse rather than getting better. Mm. And I suppose following on from that, if we think that about one in five people in critical care are needing some renal replacement treatment, do we know much about what the causes of acute kidney injury are in those patients? We don't know for certain, no. Uh, I'm asking like, yeah. a lot of questions without <laughs> answers. Yeah. Um, it's likely to be multifactorial uh, and there are lots of different causes being discussed and lots of different mechanisms of injury being uh, reported and postulated. Uh, some of our uh, discussions being informed by recent autopsy case series from China of people who did and didn't have AKI. Uh, but most data seems to suggest that the key cause of acute kidney injury in uh, people with COVID-19 is acute tubular injury and acute tubular necrosis in the context of, as we've just said, patients being extremely sick uh, with multi-organ failure and, and shock. And actually that's something that all of us who work in hospital medicine will recognise. Um, we, re- we see lots of patients with AKI in the context of sepsis uh, and certainly the people we've seen um, admitted Ailish had were particularly sick with their COVID infection and, and they were particularly intravascularly volume depletes. Certainly the people we saw had you know, been unwell at home for quite a while with poor oral intake and had extremely high insensible losses related to their fevers and their respiratory rates. Um, and so after a lot of discussion uh, about what we should be aiming for in terms of patients' fluid status in COVID-19, the current consensus is that we should be aiming for uvolemia um, rather than running people dry to try and help their respiratory function. And we should be using IV fluid administration to, to achieve this. And so a good fluid assessment and good fluid management is going to be key to trying to manage uh, AKI in these patients. Uh, apart from... AKI related to intravascular volume depletion. The other things that are being sort of discussed as mechanisms of injury include a direct uh, tubular injury related to the virus binding to ACE2. Uh, so ACE2 is angiotensin converting enzyme 2, which is highly expressed in the kidneys, in the proximal tubule cells, and in the uh, podocytes. And it looks like the COVID-19 virus can bind to ACE2 and using ACE2 and other transmembrane proteases enters uh, into target host cells. And so it's been postulated that maybe there's direct uh, tubular injury from the virus in that way. Mm. Another possible mechanism that's being discussed is um, this idea of patients being quite hypercoagulable. And again, lots of reports of um, from ITUs uh, are saying that, you know, that patients are clotting when they're being offered haemofiltration that people appear to be very hypercoagulable and so there's this idea that maybe microthrombi, fibrin thrombi are causing um, damage to the kidneys and certainly in that Chinese autopsy case series a few of the patients were found to have fibrin thrombi in the glomeruli so that's another possible kind of cause of this AKI. Mm. And I suppose we can think about those thrombi a little bit like how we're scanning people looking for pulmonary emboli when they've got worsening oxygen requirements. Yeah, yes, yeah. And I suppose one of the things to remember as well that I remember from someone we looked after is that other things can happen alongside COVID. And we had a patient who had been unwell with COVID and a fever at home who had then fallen and developed rhabdomyolysis. Yes, yeah. So I suppose remembering that other conditions can happen alongside or as a consequence of COVID, although not directly linked, can still 
happen. Yeah, I think we were, we, on both of us on the board, didn't we? we had to remind ourselves to remove the COVID-19 blinkers and to make sure we were thinking about all the things we think about uh, when we see someone with an AKI uh, normally and, and mm. not trying to just focus on one um, one particular virus, uh, but making sure we're not forgetting all the other causes of, of AKI that exist. And thinking about that and trying to not forget other causes of AKI, would there be any other changes to the way that we investigate people in this context? Um, I don't, you know, I think the approach should be the same as it should be to anyone with AKI. Um, uh, you know, a good history, a good examination, a good fluid assessment. Um, and it's, I think it's easy to sit in a, a room talking on a podcast about fluid assessment being important and making it sound quite easy, but uh, I, we certainly found it quite difficult with some of the patients because it's quite, you know, it's quite difficult to detect pulmonary edema when someone has um, fluid bilateral COVID-19 pneumonia. And so uh, it's, I would, you know, although the fluid assessment is extremely important, it is quite difficult. Um, and so I would suggest that people do repeated fluid assessments um, and you know look for the effect of an intervention with fluid to see whether patients are getting better as you might have hoped. Beyond that, the, the management should really be the same as, as, as it is for other patients with AKI. So mm. uh, you know, make sure you do dip the urine if there is evidence of blood and protein. Think about uh, you know cervicalicides and uh, make sure that you send off blood tests investigating uh, for them. Uh, image the renal tract. Uh, there may be some difficulties getting scans, I guess, at, the, at this time because of the infection in the hospital, but try and image the renal tract to make sure there's no obstruction, uh, review medications, uh, remove any maybe nephrotoxic medications and dose adjust any that may uh, need dose adjustments. Beyond that, if it looks like someone might be needing renal support and dialysis, the same indications for dialysis are, you know, should be should be followed now as they should be pre-COVID. Um, so you know, hyperkalemia, fluid overload that can't be managed with with uh, diuretics or other means, uh, uremia with symptoms and uh, acidemia again that can't be corrected. So that you know, just the same management we'd normally do. Mm. I think that's all really helpful to think that actually it's as you say not being blinkered. Think about other causes and follow the standard advice that we already give in these settings. You mentioned a little bit about drug dosing for people with acute kidney injury and I suppose that's something that we always ask people to check the drug charts and make sure that doses prescribed are are appropriate. Are there any special situations or anything in particular that's worth noting from that? In specific to this COVID-19 pandemic, the main area of kind of importance with respect to drugs and drug dosing is the recovery trial, which I'm sure most people will be aware of, but it's an adaptive, pragmatic, randomised controlled trial trying to evaluate um, various treatments for COVID-19 infection. And the uh, current treatments being evaluated uh, include dexamethasone, azithromycin, lapinavir, ritonavir, hydroxychloroquine and atoclizumab. Uh, and there's been a lot of debate about the dosing of hydroxychloroquine in, in patients with advanced mm-hmm. kidney impairment, uh, but actually we think that there is no uh, dose adjustment required and people with advanced kidney disease can go into the uh, hydroxychloroquine arm as, as any other patient. The other people to be concerned about from a renal point of view uh, with respect to the recovery trial are people who are taking um, drugs like taquilimus or cyclosporin, which are frequently used in renal transplantation, 
as these can interact with the lopinavir, ritonavir um, treatment and result in very, very high levels of the drugs of tacrolimus and cyclosporin. Um, so the current Renal Association and, and British Transplantation Society guidance is to not uh, randomise patients on these drugs to the lopinavir ritonavir arm, but they can be randomised to other arms. Okay, that's really helpful. And if we can I move on just to think still a little bit on the kind of um, drug and medication prescribing, but from a slightly different perspective, there's always been so much discussion about ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers in general when people are unwell and when these medications should be withheld and when they should potentially be restarted. And that's out with of the current COVID pandemic. There's also been a little bit of discussion about the use of these drugs in COVID and you've mentioned already that angiotensin converting enzyme is expressed on the kidney and may be involved in the virus entering cells. Can you give us a little bit of information about these medications with respect to what we should be doing for people who come into hospital on them, whether we should be continuing them or stopping them? Yeah, so I guess, again, it's, it, the answer is quite easy. We don't really know what we should be doing with these medications because there's true clinical equipoise about whether they are beneficial or not. Um, and as you said, this is a debate that's been happening for a long time outside of the, this COVID-19 pandemic. So some studies suggest that uh, people on ACE inhibitors and ARBs have worse outcomes from COVID-19, but also other infections. And... That might be related to the drug, but it might be related to the reason the drug was uh, prescribed. For example, people on acetipitis are uh, may have heart failure, and that may be the thing that results in the worst outcomes. And other studies have shown that actually people who are on acetipitis in hospital um, have better outcomes. And people have speculated that maybe that's because people who are thought to be well and not have don't have severe disease have their medications continued as opposed to those people who are very sick and have their medications discontinued and actually that explains the, the difference but really we have multiple reports conflicting reports um, and we don't really know what we should be doing with ACE inhibitors and therefore we need good trial data um, and there are several trials now now underway most in the USA but I think one is now underway in Ireland uh, in which people with COVID-19 infection who are on ACE inhibitors will be randomised to either continuing that whilst they're in hospital or uh, switching the ACE inhibitor to an alternative antihypertensive to try and find out uh, whether people on ACE inhibitors and with COVID-19 infection do um, better on them or off them. Mm. Um, what should we do at the moment when people come in on an ACE inhibitor? People should follow local trust guidance and there may be local specific guidance on um, something we call sick day rules. And some people are recommending that people who are well temporarily stop their ACE inhibitors until they're better. And I would be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that as a kind of blanket approach. I think there are clear indications for stopping ACE inhibitors or ARBs and they are hyperkalemia and they are severe uh, hypotension. But beyond that, I think you need to make a judgment on a kind of individual case-by-case -case basis uh, and think about why that ACE inhibitor is being prescribed and what harm you could do by stopping it. Um, for example, if someone has heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction, are you going to be doing more harm than good stopping their ACE inhibitor uh, when they're acutely unwell? So, uh, yeah, I think we need good trial data to inform that, that, that decision-making further, but... Mm. And I suppose so much of that comes back as again to not being blinkered by COVID and if the patient is breathless because they have decompensated heart failure and pulmonary edema, then thinking about the appropriateness of all of their treatments. Yes, yes, um, yes, definitely. 
and hopefully we will actually get some useful information from drug trials at the moment, seeing as things are moving so quickly, it might actually give us a lot of information. Yes, yeah, that would be great. That would yeah. be a really good outcome. <laughs> I think the final kind of theme that I was wanting to ask about is moving away from acute kidney injury, but more for patients who have got chronic kidney disease and in particular patients who are on dialysis as a maintenance or a life-saving treatment. They obviously form a group of people who still have to come to hospital up to three times a week throughout this whilst everybody else is shielding or social distancing at home. So they are obviously in a slightly different position to a lot of other people at the current time. What is happening across the UK for dialysis patients in this situation? Yeah, so, I mean, as you said, these people don't have the luxury of shielding completely. They still, uh, if they're having in-centre dialysis, have to come up for their dialysis. Uh, and so the approach really is to try and ensure that the people on dialysis, the people driving them to dialysis uh, and the staff working in the dialysis unit are all kept as safe as possible. And so the current guidance is that all dialysis patients should be wearing um, face masks, surgical face masks, to um, uh, dialysis during dialysis sessions. And the staff should also be wearing appropriate uh, PPE with face masks, visors, uh, aprons and gloves um, to try and prevent uh, you know, transmission through the unit. Um, and dialysis patients are being encouraged to come to dialysis because uh, we know that there's fear out there and people are scared of going out into the community mm. but missed dialysis uh, results in you know, greater harms than coming, you know, coming into contact with the virus um, for, most, for most people. Mm. So essentially, remember that dialysis is very important for managing all the other life-threatening complications of yes. renal yeah. failure. Yeah, yes. Uh, we are aware that some units are under a lot of, kind of strain at the moment because of staffing issues with staff going uh, off sick with COVID-19 uh, and that some dialysis units are having to make some very difficult decisions about violent dialysis and so in those extreme and rare situations some units are recommending that individual patients go down to twice a week dialysis um, <laughs> from the typical three times a week dialysis but those decisions are being made, again, on a kind of individual case-by-case basis, and patients themselves shouldn't be doing that without you know, discussion with their, their dialysis team and, and their doctors. Uh, other steps are being used to help keep those patients safe, and we're making use of the uh, relatively new potassium binder drugs, uh, pterimer and localma, to try and keep people who are having reduced number of dialysis sessions safe uh, in between their dialysis treatments. Mm. And I think those are probably drugs that a lot of people are just becoming familiar with or potentially hearing for the first time at the moment, but are different from the uh, traditional calcium rhizonium, which we probably previously would have thought of when we talked about potassium binders. And in terms of patients on dialysis who have become unwell with COVID-19, have you got any experience or kind of perspectives from having looked after these individuals on the ward? Is there anything that makes them behave any differently to other patients? Uh, I think it comes back a bit to what we were saying earlier about um, fluid assessment being quite important and we found that a number of patients are below their target weight arriving intravascular deplete uh, and that that's causing some instability on dialysis though. Uh, 
a lot of the patients with COVID-19 that we've seen uh, who are on dialysis um, have often had acute deteriorations whilst on the dialysis machine uh, and we would be guessing as to why that was happening but mm -hmm. um, you know we had discussions on the ward didn't we about what might cause the acute deterioration and some of that we thought might be that they were underfilled and they certainly improved a little bit with fluid but at the same time we were worried about um, viral myocarditis uh, and we certainly saw very high troponin rises in certain individuals um, and again we were discussing whether there was actually showering from my causing an acute deterioration that's all speculation but that's yeah. certainly what, what we were seeing on the, on the ward and i think what was related to that was that a number of our patients then became quite anxious and completely understandably about going onto the dialysis machine because it had been associated with this deterioration and so we drew heavily on our um, renal psychology specialists to help um, manage people's anxiety when they're on the dialysis machine uh, and so we've certainly in, in Bristol we've got a fantastic psychology team but it might be worth if you haven't drawing on other psychologists in your trust to help um, support patients who are on top of dealing with COVID-19, also dealing with a lot of anxiety and fear related to their, you know, life-sustaining treatment that they, they have to continue receiving. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such an important point to make, isn't it? Because if they spend 48 hours just worrying about the next session, it's what we can do to support them. And I think there probably are certain areas in the hospital where people want to help and are not quite sure where they're best suited to doing that. And mm -hmm. We've been handing phones into patients, haven't we? Most things have not been necessarily face-to-face, -face, mm. but I think it maybe is a little bit scary for patients to see us coming in in masks and gowns as well. So mm. perhaps a phone call is just as nice yeah. for them. Yes, yeah, definitely. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. I think those were the main points that I wanted to discuss and cover today. So thank you so much for your time, and I hope Pleasure. that you find this useful.